1 Timothy chapter 6. As was read by Pastor Pratt in parallel passages. Pratt, Pastor Pratt in parallel passages. <laughs> that is, wow. <laughs> test the old tongue there, won't it? We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 the responsibilities of slaves and masters. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. In light of this passage on slaves, we might say that most Americans are invigorated by a good story of revolt. We come by it naturally, I suppose. Our origins as a nation are rooted in the bloody revolution against then-tyrannical rule of England. Ours was a full-scale revolt, producing chest-thumping slogans like, We serve no sovereign here. And don't tread on me. Perhaps it's in our blood. We side with the oppressed when they revolt because we cherish liberty and justice for all. You have perhaps seen the old movie Spartacus, loosely based on the historical account of a slave uprising in Rome. Spartacus, a Roman gladiator, escapes the gladiatorial school at Capua in 73 B.C. with approximately 75 other gladiatorial slaves. They seize knives and a wagon load of weapons, and they escape to Mount Vesuvius, and other slaves begin to join them there as the whole story builds. 3,000 Roman soldiers attack the slaves there on Mount Vesuvius, and uh, through the being outmaneuvered by the slaves, the Roman troops are defeated there. And you can imagine how that is received by the slaves of the Roman Empire. Pretty soon there's 70,000 of them forming an army, and they defeat two legions of Roman soldiers. Well, when a good thing starts, it just keeps going, doesn't it? 120,000 slaves are then assembled. And finally, in southern Italy, are defeated by six legions of well-trained Roman troops. Now, if you've ever seen that, that old film, you just think all the way through. It's just geared. There's really no other way you can handle it but saying all the way through, Go Spartacus! You want to see him win! You want to see slavery ended and liberty and justice for all. Human slavery is a vile crime against humanity, and we should rejoice whenever this institution is thwarted. But it's here. It's here at this very place, at one place among many, but it is here that our identity as the children of God is put on radical display. For many, there is nothing more important than liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But for the followers of Jesus Christ, there is something much more important. And that is the name and the glory of God. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This message of salvation in His name 
becomes all-important. The reputation of God, the gospel of Jesus, are to serve as the controlling center in every relationship in the believer's life. This is the great agenda, and it is to affect all that we do, overriding even natural self-interest. We see this truth emerging directly from the Apostle Paul's instructions to Timothy as to how he is to teach the slaves in the church at Ephesus. If you're thinking through the context here, you remember in chapter 5 and verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. There's the word honor in Timothy's relationship to these women, and as he leads the church, they're to honor these widows. 5, 3, and following. And then we come to elders in chapter 5 and verse 17, a different group that Timothy is to consider. And guess what the command is once again? It is to honor. Verse 17, then we come to chapter 6 and verse 1, now dealing with slaves and their relationship with masters, and once again the same theme of honor appears. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So dealing now with this unique group, we have this same imperative to honor. Let's put ourselves back in that setting just a bit. We're a long ways from Spartacus in his day in 73-72 BC and his rebellion. But as we put ourselves back at Ephesus now in the Roman Empire, we need to understand that in the empire there's an estimated 50 to 60 million slaves. It's believed that in a city such as Ephesus there may have been up to one-third of the population that was in slavery. But we need to do some bridge work here as we bridge the gap between our understanding of slavery and slavery in the ancient world. Slavery in Ephesus was not racially based. It made no difference your race. And that's a, a huge difference between our conception of the, of the institution. Many had considerable freedoms, even living in their own homes. Now there was, they were not to escape, obviously. But they, many of them had much freedom. In fact, if you were a doctor in the ancient world or a teacher in the ancient world, there was a very strong possibility that you were a slave. That is, that your economic uh, consideration, your economic situation was under the uh, umbrella of slavery. Most slaves uh, were able to purchase their freedom after a certain place in time. Something like college students, we hope, do today after they put themselves in slavery and indebtedness. You hope someday they get free. Uh, this was something of the situation. Many slaves were freed by the, the age of 30. So it's not the same setting as we have race-based for-life slavery. It was closer in some respects to an employee-employer relationship, though that's going too far the other direction. So somewhere in between our picture of slavery, as we think, let's say, back to 1820, just to pick a date, and the employer-employee relationship today is the situation of slavery in Ephesus. Now, let's go to that Ephesian church with that context in mind and realize that in that church there are slaves and there are masters. And they're worshiping together right there in the same assembly. The gospel of Jesus Christ has radical implications. These masters and slaves are viewed in what way? Not so much as masters and slaves as they are as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
There is in the teaching of the New Testament, the church is teaching no sense of superiority for masters. Culturally, they are superior as the world would look at them, but not in the church. In fact, there was nothing in Scripture that would lead against a slave becoming an elder in a church and a master becoming a deacon, a word which means servant. Kind of ironic if you think of it, but it's very possible because there is no status in the Christian church. We are all one before Christ as brothers and sisters. Now there is authority in the Christian church, of course, as we have discussed even recently in this book of 1 Timothy. But that authority is always exercised as a family of God, as within that family of God, and we are all of the same family. The potential, then, was there for difficulties to arise because we're putting together a point of tension here. There's what the culture expects, and there is what is true within the culture of the church. Now, as we come to Ephesians chapter 6 and these two verses, we say this is millions of miles from where we are. How do we relate to this situation? I would encourage you, to relate to it by looking at Paul's reasoning. What is it that drives the Apostle Paul here in his teaching? It is very enlightening as we look at it. We'll come back to that as we first work to understand what he is saying. We see, first of all, in verse 1, that Christian slaves should honor their masters so as to protect the reputation of God and the wonder of the gospel. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. He refers to their situation as under the yoke of slavery. The yoke, of course, is that wood collar that's put around the neck of an ox. Attached to it are cords that lead to the plow. And so the ox pulls the plow with that yoke around its neck. Paul, I think here, acknowledges the oppressive nature of slavery. You see what he's not saying. Now you slaves, listen. It's really not all that bad. There's a lot of worries that you don't need to deal with as you are in slavery. And just think of your relationship with Christ and try to forget about what's going on in your life. It's really not all that difficult. Oh, Paul says it's a yoke of bondage. It's a great difficulty and a trial upon you. It's oppressive. But as you bear that yoke of slavery, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. Notice the phrase, own masters. The slave is not to see himself as everyone's slave, as if he were a slave by nature. But the slave does have a master, and Paul addresses that relationship here. So slaves, knowing that they are free in Christ and equal to all other Christians, might be tempted to harbor a bad attitude or to render inferior work to their masters. And Paul says that's not right. You are to regard your own masters as God in His providence has put you under their authority. You're to regard them as worthy of all honor. This word regard speaks of self-determined consideration. You need to stop and think about your master and say, I will honor my master. They are in a position of authority. Now look at the context again of chapter 5 and verse 3 and chapter 5 and verse 17. And once again here we have this concept of honor. This is appropriate. It is appropriate to honor widows. And it is appropriate to honor the elders of the assembly. In like manner, it is appropriate, slaves, for you to honor your masters. 
You see the parallel there? We can't really squirm away from it. He's, he's drawing these parallels together. But why, we ask? Isn't slavery wrong? Wouldn't it be right for Paul to say, slavery's wrong, let's end it. Let's work together in some way to bring it to a close. Why does he not say that? Some have actually insisted that the Bible teaches slavery here. That this passage is condoning slavery. I think to say that is to miss the whole point. Paul is not saying that slavery is a noble institution, only that Christian slaves should act nobly. That's a very different situation. I have full confidence that should we stand the Apostle Paul up here today and say, are you condoning slavery, he would rebuke us for completely missing his point. Paul's instructions to slaves here and everywhere else in the scriptures has been read earlier today undercuts the institution. The issue here is that Paul has a much greater purpose in view. Why should slaves honor their masters? Why is this right? Second part of verse 1, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. We must focus on that phrase. I believe this is the key to these verses. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This is the reason slaves should honor their masters. Not because slavery is God's design, but because the name or the reputation of God is at stake in the way that slaves handle themselves as slaves. And what is also at stake, you notice there is the teaching. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Put these things before them. That is, teach the church these things. Verse 11 of chapter 4, command and teach these things. Verse 16 of chapter 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In chapter 5 and verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. If we go back even further to chapter 1 and verse 3, chapter 1 and verse 3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There is the stewardship of God, verse 4, to which he refers. And verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the teaching that leads to the demonstration of the gospel of Christ, as is brought out in verse 11, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the teaching. The teaching is the transforming message of salvation in Jesus Christ that defines our everyday lives as believers. So there's two things that are in jeopardy here. The name of God and the teaching of salvation in Christ with all of its implications. That is what is at issue as far as Paul is concerned as he looks at this matter. So slaves can bring disrepute to the Lord as Mounts puts it, they can soil the gospel if they act dishonorably as Christians. This line of instruction reveals the importance of slaves in the body of Christ, doesn't it? In the culture, they have no real rights, they have no status. They can perhaps buy status with money eventually, but they're nobody. 
But in the church, they are valuable witnesses for Jesus Christ in the culture. You go out from this assembly, says the apostle, and you as slaves represent the name of God and the true doctrine. The way that you relate to your masters is crucial. This gives them a very high standing in the assembly. As believers, we form a family in which there are no unimportant members. Each one of us is a witness of the gospel and can bring dishonor to the name of God and dishonor to the true doctrine. This is true for our young people. Those of you that are in school, that relate to neighbors in your area, that are connecting with other young people, you have as much a responsibility to honor the name of God and the true doctrine as anyone else that is an adult in this assembly. You carry the message of Christ, and it is crucial that you do so faithfully and not bring dishonor to the name of our God. This is true for those of us who have an employer, as employees, certainly. You know, if you think of this, those who are working every day and have a boss, an employer, someone who, who is giving to you responsibility, you know you are closer to that boss than anyone else in this assembly. You need to display to your boss the gospel of Jesus Christ and the name of God to that boss. By working hard, by being honest in the work that you do, by showing respect for his or her authority. You want to show that respect and to evidence that there is nothing in you that is causing trouble to your boss. That does not mean there are times when you don't need to stand up to a boss and don't need to say, sometimes I can't do this, it's not right. And I know as I talk to uh, people here that those ethical questions are raised all the time as an employee. But you understand the principle. You are relating as you represent Christ, this church, in a secondary manner, but Christ, ultimately, you are representing the gospel to your employer. How do you do that? What does your employer think about the gospel of Jesus Christ on the basis of your labors and your efforts? Some bosses can be unfair. They can be hard. They can be irresponsible. But remember that the greatest issue is not your reputation and freedom, but the reputation of God and the freedom of the gospel. That comes first. And so you must represent it faithfully. Paul now turns in verse 2 to a more specific situation. It's difficult, I think probably speaking generally in verse 1, some would argue that he's speaking particularly of those who have unbelieving bosses, either way, or uh, masters rather, but either way, he says secondly now that Christian slaves should serve their Christian masters with respect as members of God's household. Verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. They are brothers. You see the assumption there. They are siblings in Christ. They share equally in the new birth and enjoy full status as the children of God. Christian slaves are in no way inferior to their masters in the faith. And growing in that realization of their identity in Christ, some slaves in the Ephesian church were apparently tempted to take liberties with their Christian masters. 
They were tempted to work less effectively, to cut corners, to presume upon their master's kindness as believers in Christ. This is wrong, says Paul. It's kind of interesting. And you remember in the reading in Ephesians 6, Paul addresses in this same church slaves and masters. He doesn't mention any masters here. Apparently they've gotten the admonition and they are following through on their responsibilities to be faithful to the slaves that they have. But he comes back to the slaves here with a pretty pointed address. Now, of course, it's directed to Timothy, but through him to the slaves of the church. You are to honor your masters, and you're not to treat the believing master that you may have differently because he is a Christian. Why is this? Verse 2b, the second part of the verse, rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What sense does it make to serve your Christian master worse than you would serve him if he were unsaved? What are you saying about your understanding of the family of God when you do that? There's a lot of implications here that spread far past, obviously, masters and slaves. Why would we treat a Christian worker in any situation differently or worse than we would treat an unbeliever? If we understand the family of God and our responsibility to love one another, we should treat the brotherhood better, the Christian family better than we would treat anyone else, along with loving others who are lost. But since he is a brother, you should love him all the more and serve him all the better, is Paul's thinking. This instruction is nonsense, I think, apart from getting the sense of what it means to be part of the family of God. If we don't have a sense of our obligation to one another, our joyful responsibility to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, this makes no sense at all. But it makes perfect sense knowing that we are called to love one another. Now there's a word in this second half of verse 2 that might very easily miss us, and it's crucial. And that's the word benefit. They must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What's interesting here is that the Greek word translated benefit was commonly used of a superior service to an inferior, of a benefactor's gift to someone of lesser status. And I think it's very possible, we we can't be uh, adamant about this, but I think that it's very possible that Paul purposefully hijacks this word to say that Christian slaves render benefit to their Christian masters as a kindness. As one commentator puts it, Paul has turned the tables. Masters are the ones who benefit the slaves. Paul is saying, no, the slaves are benefiting the masters by their service. Mounts writes, learning to view a slave's labor not as a duty, but as an act of kindness is revolutionary. And here's where we begin to really get to the heart of Paul's thinking. Nowhere as he discusses slavery does he ever tie it to creation. Does he ever tie it to the commandments of God as he does, for instance, with the relationship between husband and wife and parents and children. He never does that. He just deals with it as a reality of their culture and their society. But when he talks about slavery, he does things like this. They're your brothers 
in Christ. They benefit you. They are the benefactors rendering service to you. And as we begin to read between the lines and really look at Paul's thinking, we realize that he's undercutting the whole institution. Indeed, Paul's teaching is far more revolutionary than if he had incited a slave revolt. It's one strategy to give slaves knives and say, go to town, let's fight. It's another strategy, and far more profound, to exhort slaves to live in such a manner as to cut the ground out from under the whole institution. To live in such a way that you show slavery to be foolish. You don't need slaves when people are honest and faithful and honorable in their work. There's no need for slavery in that situation. There was need for slavery in the ancient world right here where we stop and sit. We would like to redesign it and to say it was never there, never necessary, but where they are in time, it was essential. There, in fact, were laws that were being passed to keep slaves from being freed too quickly because it was causing economic trial to the empire. Paul is not arming the slaves and calling them to revolt. What he is leading is a revolution of the Spirit, a way of working that will undermine it all and lead to a far greater standing. Paul will incite no social riots because his interest is not in simply social reform, but is in what? It is in the name of God and it is in the spread of the gospel of Christ. There's a far higher issue here. With this agenda in view, Christian slaves must do nothing to detract from the gospel. There is a conflict then that these slaves are dealing with. A conflict between their social responsibility as slaves and their standing in Christ. Their union with Him and their oneness with the other believers in the Lord. But in Christ there is no slave-master relationship. Yet, the answer is not revolution. The answer is to be the best servant that you can be. To the glory of the name of God and to the spread and adornment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I indicated here earlier, let me land on this a bit longer. Many have argued through the years that the Bible teaches slavery. And arguments have been drawn from biblical texts such as this one to say, now think here people. If God did not want slavery, would he have said this? Slaves, honor your masters? It's logical on the face of it in one sense. It's obviously flawed logic, but it, it, it seems to hold together. If God's commanding uh, ish, uh, the slaves to honor their masters, then he clearly is condoning slavery. There are other arguments that are drawn from the Bible where people would commend slavery. But I think in all of these situations, what we are dealing with really is proof texting from the Bible that has led many to find support for their racist and selfish views condoning slavery. That's what's really going on. And let me just say, culturally speaking, we need to understand this. The most devastating blows to slavery, especially to race-based slavery, have come from Bible believers, from committed Christians. 
couple of names to throw out at you if you want to chase this a bit, and perhaps uh, in the reconstructionism of our day, this is usually the way, these are not the people that come to the surface. Uh, as people speak of Christianity as the cause of slavery in our nation's history, many will point to individuals who use proof texting uh, and, and, and bad argumentation. But look at an individual like Lewis Tappan or William Wilberforce in England. Just do a search on those names, look up these individuals and realize the significance of the work that they did to the point of persecution physically and the work that they did to undermine slavery in this country and in England and ultimately in the West. Those who have read the Bible and especially the writings of Paul carefully have found there the axe that severed the root of slavery in the West. Paul's teachings create a culture in which slavery loses all meaning. Now think about it. If everyone becomes a Christian, then everyone is a brother and sister in Christ. And if everyone becomes a Christian, there is no cheating. There's no stealing. There's no lethargy, laziness. There's a deep respect between all people in the work that they're doing. If this is what it takes place with everyone in the culture, slavery becomes absolutely useless and unnecessary. And we might say, well, they weren't all becoming Christians. Well, Paul wasn't done yet. He was working on that. And as he laid out these ideas, he was undercutting the whole institution. But again, remembering that there is a bigger issue here. Slavery and its end is not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is the spread of the gospel in the name of God. We must also throw in one more reminder here, considering the difference of the cultures, and that we were dealing with something that was entrenched, it was in some respect necessary at the moment, and Paul is not going to lead a revolt to bring down the order of society. He is seeking a much larger revolution. But it reminds us as we consider this. Now let's get back to that point and think, how is Paul thinking here? It reminds us that in every relationship, we are, as the followers of Christ, exemplifying the gospel. Even at personal cost sometimes. And that's where things really get interesting for us. We need to respond in all of our relationships with kind words and full effort and loving sacrifice as we work and as we re relate to other people. But in every relationship, whether it's employee, employer, or others, as we meet a clerk at the store, as you interact with a workmate or a neighbor, someone who rides on the bus or someone uh, at a school event or wherever it is, as we interact with people, do we think of ourselves as representatives of Christ and of the gospel? Do we think of ourselves as preaching a message of salvation in Jesus in all of our interactions and relationships? This is what's at the heart of Paul's teaching here. This is what drives him to say the things that he's saying. It certainly does apply to mothers as we consider them particularly on this day and to fathers. As we relate to our children, we relate to them seeking to honor the gospel of Christ, knowing that there is a greater agenda than just our family getting along or accomplishing what we want. I was uh, interacting with Pastor Tim Graham from Pine Island here this week and on this very matter, and we were talking through our 
There's sermons for today and, and just uh, discussing the matters that were before us on Mother's Day. And I explained to him that I'd be preaching on 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. This is what he wrote back. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, and the responsibility of slaves. Some overtaxed moms might believe you are preaching on a Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> I think there's a profound application here. And I speak to you mothers particularly. We must remember children are not ours for self-pleasure. Now that goes in two different ways, it seems, depending on the kind of mother that you are. On the far end of one scale is the starry-eyed mom whose kids can never do any wrong. Now there's modifications on that, but using that as the polar one pole uh, of the discussion. There are those who have this starry-eyed view of their children. And really at the heart could be the accusation that they believe their children exist for their own pleasure. On the other pole are those who have a very harsh and demanding spirit of their children because they want them always to walk in line and not to cause any problems. Looking at those two poles, wherever one lands on that scale, there's really a wrong orientation at its very heart. Our children do not exist for our pleasure, whether that's to walk in line in a demanding way or whether that's just to bring us pleasure by the fact that they make us happy and smile or whatever there is in between. This isn't the agenda. Our children are not for our own satisfaction in a temporal sense. We need to realize as mothers, as fathers, as adults in the assemblies we relate to children, that what is at issue here is the name of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In every relationship, we are seeking to present the truth of the gospel. I don't mean by that that we are preaching uh, salvation or conversion messages at every conversation that we have with our children. But we are realizing that in everything that we do as mothers and everything that we do as fathers, we are either exalting the name of God or distorting it perhaps even destroying it. In everything that we do, we are either adorning the gospel or we are soiling it in our relationship with our kids. We need to realize that they are not ours and parenting is not about us. It's about the gospel of Christ and the name of God. And if you're parenting for self, you have a little idol in your home or a big one who's left your home. We're not to idolize our children. We are to minister the Word of God and to honor the name of our Lord in all that we do. And all of this points to this greater message. There is a message that is greater than external freedom in this world, writes Paul here, because it provides a liberation that is out of this world. There is a freedom from the penalty and the power of sin that is available in Jesus Christ. And that's much bigger than the slavery uh, that a master can impose upon a slave physically. We all, as slaves of sin, have violated God's law. And we are destined to suffer the wrath of God for it by our very nature. But there is the freedom in Christ, the ransom of the slave, the forgiveness of sin that comes by Jesus paying the penalty of our sin and by Him rising from the dead in conquest over sin and death. 
It's in this message of freedom and forgiveness that we can come as slaves of sin and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality that drives Paul in this passage and that should drive us in all of our relationships, employee, employer, parent, child, casual acquaintance, is that the greatest freedom that any human being can ever gain is slavery to Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer.